0: Hey guys, real quick before we get started, we are doing a free giveaway for listeners between now and May 31st, cash prizes, free swag, yacht meetup tickets, San Diego Padre tickets, and more. All you got to do to qualify is go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and drop a five-star review, send a screenshot to giveaway at summerscapital.com, and we'll be selecting lucky winners May 31st. As always, I appreciate the support. Now let's jump into the show.
1: You never know where these connections are going to take you. Yeah. And I'm definitely not encouraging people to walk into it with a transactional mindset mm-hmm. because that wasn't my intention. I'm sure that wasn't yours either, but it's like, you know that if you give enough value to people, the laws of the universe are that you will get some kind of value in return. And what so many new investors struggle with, Rich, is that they feel, I don't have anything to share. I'm, I'm not experienced enough. I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not him, I'm not her. And th- the truth is people will resonate with, Certain people and they will not resonate with other people.
0: Welcome to the Rich Summers Report, where we talk real estate, business, and wealth building all while keeping it real. No fluff, no BS. I hope that you enjoy the show. All right, welcome to another episode of the report. Today, we got one of the most exciting up and coming real estate investors in the space. He is the host of the Bigger Pockets Rookie podcast. I got none other than Tony Robinson. Welcome to the show, my man.
1: Dude, rich I appreciate you, man. Um I'm excited to be here. I was just saying, this is like literally one of the nicest sets I've been on for a podcast. So, I appreciate you bringing me on and I'm excited to share my story.
0: Yeah, you. man. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah. Um you live uh just a couple of hours up the uh, 15 freeway in yeah. Rancho Cucamonga. yep not too far. How, how was the drive down, man?
1: It was good. I was just saying, man, until I got right into San Diego's when the rain started to hit, but other yeah. than that, man, it was a, it was a smooth drive.
0: Yeah, I love that. So, we uh first met out in Nashville. I yeah. believe it was uh june of last year at mike shogren's str wealth conference right, right and then um i got to meet sarah and you again at the our yacht meetup going into the bigger pockets conference here in san diego back in october yeah. uh what have you been up to since man dude
1: we we are always on the move um we have our real estate investing business which primarily focuses on short-term rentals um, we're at f- about 30 single-family houses in in that business right now spread across two different states Um, we flip houses as well. So we've got a few house flips working on right now. Uh, we have a short-term rental cleaning company, which keeps us kind of busy. We've got, uh, our commercial side, which we're trying to grow as well. So, um, just always moving, man. And we just launched our coaching program as well. So that's been super crazy, super busy. Also trying to keep that thing. That thing going. So it's been yeah, fun. Yeah,
0: dude, you guys are uh, involved with a lot of different things. I didn't all realize all over the place, man. Yeah, what, what's the cleaning business about? So we we just we've done that as like a soft launch this
1: last year. So there was a a gap in the marketplace we identified in terms of like short term rental focused cleaning companies that could provide good service, but that also had the I don't know the tech know how to kind of mm-hmm. support and you know investors of today. A lot of people in the short-term rental space in terms of vendors, like your cleaners, your handymen, they're all, you know, a lot of them are great people, but they are, are old school in a mm-hmm. lot of the ways that they do things. And what we identified was that if we can blend what, what we've learned about what makes a good cleaner with the technology solutions, kind of put those two things together, maybe we can start solving a problem because there aren't really any national short-term rental cleaning companies yeah. that you can think of. Tons of property management companies, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but a short-term rental cleaning company that's national, you, you can't really think of one. So- our goal is to hopefully fill that gap, man.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. So take me back a little bit. I think one of the most impressive things about your story is you were a W2 employee like myself just a few years back. And I, I don't know when it was, I believe it was what 2020 when you got started. How did the whole real estate investing thing come to fruition? And what were you doing before?
1: Yeah, so it, it was a it was a crazy journey, man. So like most people, uh, I went to college, you mm-hmm. know, graduated, got a job, climbed the corporate ladder, And, um, I had done pretty well for myself, man. Like I, my, my last W2 job was at Tesla. I was a senior manager in their supply chain network. So the last role that I had, um, basically like if you drive a Tesla and you had to take it in for service, the part that went into your car came from one of my distribution centers. So we had a network across the United States Had like 600 team members that were in my organization. Um, so big job, super busy. And yeah, man, I was, you know, the, the perfect way for me to start funding my real estate business. Um, so as I was working there, I started investing in long-term rentals, uh, initially. And this was back in, in 2019 when we started mm. that. And I was, you know, doing the long-term rental thing. I was buying houses in Louisiana. Um, s- super random because I live in California. Yeah. Um, but I think I bought like four or five houses out there. And then we eventually made the transition to short-term rentals in 2020. And we bought, gosh, I want to say three, like pretty much right in the middle of COVID. And then right at the end of uh, 2020, I ended losing my job. Mm. And my wife and I had to make the decision around like, okay, do we go out and try and, you know, she wasn't working at the time. She was kind of staying at home, um, doing some other small things. And and we said like, do we both go back and get jobs or do we kind of go full force into this real estate thing? And, you know, I, I asked her, I was like, hey, I don't want to go back. <laughs> like, I don't want to go back to work. I was like, can you give me one year? Give me one year to really figure this thing out. And our goal in that first year was to try and buy one house a quarter. We ended up buying, I think, like 13 that year. Wow. Um, so it was, uh, it was a good year for us. And after that, we said, OK, I don't think we have to go back and let's keep growing this thing.
0: Yeah, um, I actually bought my first few short term rentals. One of them was like right before the pandemic um, and then a couple more like right when the pandemic had started. Mm-hmm. There was a bunch of there was a period where it was a bunch of bad news. Mm-hmm. People were afraid uh, for maybe like five or six months before right. the government started printing a bunch of money mm-hmm. and interest rates went down. What was that like buying that first short term rental during the pandemic when there was bad news everywhere you looked? So like for us in California, things really started to shut down in like, like late March, mm-hmm. right?
1: Um, we got our first one under contract. I want to say like July. Okay. When we got our. So it had already been a couple months and dude, just like you said, there was a lot of uncertainty around mm-hmm. where the market was going, what was going to happen. And we kind of took a leap of faith in saying like, we know that hopefully this thing won't last forever, right? Yeah. And the prices that we saw for these properties in these markets in comparison to the revenue that we were projecting was crazy. Absolutely crazy. And I'm the only regret that I have is that I didn't buy more <laughs> during mm, those first few months. Same. Because that first deal that we bought, it was a five-bedroom cabin in Tennessee. And we bought it for $590,000. $590, we were all, land; we used a 10% down second home loan to buy it. Um, we were all in after closing costs. You had some credits, you know, furnishings, little things like that. We were all in for 65K on that first property.
0: Wow. All in. That's everything included everything. closing costs, Clo- furnishing. Wow. Right? 65K. That's a crazy cash on cash return, Dude, I can imagine. That's what I'm about to tell you right <laughs> now,
1: right? So that first year, the first full 12 months we owned it, we did $156,000 in top line revenue and we netted 84K on wow. that one deal.
0: So Over 100%. Like
1: 138% cash on cash return. So when we saw and do that first month, like as soon as we took it live, it was just like crazy. And that was really what gave us the the confidence to say, OK, we've done it once with this property. Here's a proof of concept. Mm-hmm. Let's just keep going as fast as we can.
0: So Sevierville, I know, is out uh, in the Smoky Mountains of of Tennessee. Right. Um, You got Gatlinburg, Sevierville yeah. and a couple of the other uh, little submarkets within that region. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got a big national park there. Right. How did you guys come across? Um, Like, why did you select Sevierville for that first one?
1: Relationships. Mm. I had never heard of Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg in my life, right? Yeah. And we had a friend that uh, bought a cabin out there, and he said, look, I, I and he was in California as well. He's like, look, I know you guys haven't heard of this, probably know what it is, but I'm telling you, you need to come by here. Yeah. And it was literally just on his word. You know, we did some more research on our own, and we, we bought that property sight unseen. We didn't see it until after we closed on it. We went out there to go get it set up. So it was really the relationship piece that made us confident. And I talk to so many new investors, Rich, and a big question is always, what market should I invest mm-hmm. in? And I always tell them some of the best markets that we know, the reason we're there is because we knew someone else, we met someone else that was already successful in that market and we mm-hmm. just followed them there. Like we were chatting before we started recording, I told you about uh, this, this West Virginia property that we're looking at. Same thing. It was a friend of mine who was already in that market that even turned me on to it. Mm-hmm. That's why we're looking there. So a lot of our markets come from relationships that we have.
0: Yeah. I I always tell people, I'm like, real estate investing is a people's business and it's all relationships. And if you're not making enough money, you're not buying enough deals, uh, it's simply because you're not shaking enough hands. And I truly believe that. Um, Were you guys even like looking at AirDNA and some of that stuff back then for the first one?
1: We did. You know, I mean, a very rudimentary process in comparison to what we do today. But, you know, like AirDNA has like the free charts and you can like download and it shows you 50%, you know, you're going to do this, 75%, you'll do this. And we kind of use that as a benchmark. But really, like I said, it was talking to other owners that were already in that market and hearing their experience outside of that, you know, maybe six to eight weeks where they were shut down. Everything else was like just on fire for them. And that was that was kind of the proof that we needed to keep moving.
0: And so I know today you guys uh, have a lot of real estate in the Joshua Tree area. Um, Tell me a little bit about what's going on with the Joshua Tree market today. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: Yeah, so we we went into Joshua Tree after Tennessee, right? And we said, well, man, we had such great success with this market that had this national park. What other national parks can we go into? Mm-hmm. And us being in California, Joshua Tree is one of the closest ones. So we quickly turned our attention there. And here's what i was saying: this is honestly not just a Joshua Tree thing, but in most, I say mature short-term rental markets across the, the United States, is mm-hmm. that in 2020 and prior, you could be a pretty lousy host. And still do really well on that platform. Yeah. Like that was like, there just wasn't as many. There weren't as many professional host people who are running this like a business. You saw a lot of people who, um, kind of had this second home and they weren't really trying to maximize profitability. They just wanted to cover their mortgage. So they could use it for themselves. Um, or the people that, that were running it like a business, they could be these kind of, you know, subpar properties, but because the options were so limited, they were still making a ton of money. What we've seen since is that there's more people coming into this space that are running it like an actual business, mm-hmm. that are putting the focus on guest experience, that are putting the focus on um, the aesthetics of the property, that are putting the focus on customer service. And as those hosts start to come into the space, the bar for um, like the barrier to entry starts to raise, right? And the the level of expectations of guests in that market starts to raise as well, right? So that that's just like across the board. I think we're seeing that in, in most markets in the United States. With Joshua Tree in particular, I think what we're seeing is that there is, there's been a massive influx of new construction in that mm-hmm. market. Um, there's been a massive influx of really cool properties in that market. And just like the, the interest in that market is, has skyrocketed, right? Um, so what we're doing in that market to remain competitive is going back to what I just said, right? How can we put the focus on the guest experience that, that, that guest, um, the guests really enjoy themselves when we get there? So for example, we have most of our homes out there are tiny homes, like the 391 square feet. We have like 12 of
0: those out there. What, what defines a tiny home?
1: There, there's a loose definition, right? Sure. I would really consider ours more studios. Um, but like a true tiny home is, you know, it's going to be a, a small structure, maybe an upstairs and a downstairs. And it's just really compact. So it feels like a real home. Sure. But it's, you know, three to five hundred square feet, probably. Um, but ours are really more of a studio. Um, they've got like a studio layout, but the majority of our properties are studios out there. But we do have some that are traditional single family structures. And we took a, a listing live over the summer and it tanked, right? Like it, it really underperformed what we thought it was going to do. Um, Part of it was we got some bad reviews early on. Uh, the other piece was just that there weren't enough amenities in that property to really compete. So we went back and we kind of reevaluated. We probably invested like, I don't know, like an extra like Thirteen to fourteen thousand dollars into the property after the rehab was finished to really bring it back to life.
0: This is after you launched and you're like, hey, it's underperforming. We're going to put more money into it and go back to the drawing boards. Absolutely, I love that you did that. I'm, I'm curious. So, what did you guys end up doing?
1: Absolutely, man. So, the property itself, um, beautiful home, like one of the best rehabs that we did in mm-hmm. that market. Um, but b- again, because there's so many people coming into that market, it started to look like look like almost everything else that was already out there. So we said, what kind of things can we add? That'll separate the experience guests have at our properties versus, you know, our our competitors' properties. First thing we did was we made it more family friendly. It's a three bedroom property, so kind of big. And we added things like a pack and play, um, a high chair, um, little things that families traveling with younger kids might need, right? Um, We added a Nintendo Switch initially. We we set that up. Um, And there's some other minor things that we did, but we were essentially just trying to check as many of those amenities boxes as you possibly could for that property. And we did that. We saw a, a little lift uh, after we did that. Right. The next thing we did was we got rid of the cleaning fee. And this is something that Airbnb has kind of been talking about for a while now. Um, and now they've, they've kind of changed their search results that even favors this a little bit more. But we took the cleaning fee away altogether and we had to add it back into like our daily rate to kind of make it for that misrevenue. Sure. But dude, once we did that, it was great. And we updated the title. So it says no cleaning fee. And once we did that, like that was a crazy influx of new bookings, revenue went up. The last thing we did, and this is where the majority of that like 14,000 was spent was we renovated the garage and turned it into a game room. Mm. And dude, if you've ever looked, if you ever want to get inspiration for like what a great like game room themed type Airbnb is, look in Orlando. If you look at the properties around Disney and all those theme parks, it is crazy. The amount of like work they put into theming out those properties and uh, we were actually booking a, an Airbnb in Orlando because we had an event out there and the property that we were staying at had this really crazy like Mario themed game room. And we saw that and we we're like, man, it'd be cool if we did this in our own garage. We already had the Nintendo Switch. We're like, cool, it kind of goes with it. Yeah. So we spent 12000 bucks renovating the, the garage, turning it into a super dope Mario themed game room. There's like wood cutouts of like the green pipes that Mario comes in and out of and it, it was great. Once, I, saw,
0: I saw it on your uh, your Instagram, and for the listeners out there, I encourage all you guys to go follow uh, Tony and Sarah. They put a lot of good content on their uh, their social. But I saw yeah. you guys put a reel out on that that Mario themed garage, and uh very very impressive. Dude, once we did that, like it, that was like the the nail in the coffin to
1: really bring this listing back to life. So much so that we we like oversold, mm. right? Like I try and keep my occupancy on like a thirty day mark in line with the market. Usually in JT, if you're somewhere around like 30% occupancy on a 30-day window, you're good. Because like the really window, that low, yeah, dude. Wow, we, and that's across the board. We've seen a lot of uh, a, a significant increase in last-minute stays, mm. um, like ever since I'd say like halfway through 2022. Um, so we know like 3 bedrooms, somewhere between like 30 to 40% is probably a good number. We're at 70% on our 30-day, and I think we're at like 50% on our 60-day. And to me, if your occupancy is significantly higher than the market, it means you're underpriced. So now, yeah. we're, now we have this opposite issue where it's like we're too full. We've got to go back and increase prices, pull occupancy down. So anyway, to, to recap, right? Checking all the boxes for amenities was a major help. Cleaning fee and kind of playing around with that was another big one. And then identifying what amenities are working well in other markets that aren't super prevalent in your market and bring it into your own property is a great way.
0: Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things there that I want to kind of drill in on. So one was the pack and play and like Nintendo kid stuff where you know as me just and i don't know much about the joshua tree market i've actually never went and stayed there before but i would never thought that bringing kids to joshua tree would be like a kid-friendly thing Mm -hmm. but because you're saying because the other hosts out there aren't uh paying attention to the kid-friendly amenities you guys are doing that and so it making you unique is what you're saying
1: absolutely man And, and i would say that the majority of travelers probably coming to that market are coming without kids, right? Because they want to go into the park. They want to do this. They want to do that. But there is definitely a portion of the market that is coming with, you know, small children. Yeah. And we would see it sometimes in our messages like, um, like we didn't have standard tubs and some of our rehabs it was just like the walk in showers. And we would get some of that feedback to say, oh, man, it'd be nice if you guys had like a like a tub or something like that. So there is a portion of the of those travelers that are looking for that family experience.
0: Speaking of Joshua Tree and like weird experiences, I saw it was uh, this guy by the name of Patrick. I can't forget his last name, but he's a uh, pretty prevalent in the STR mm-hmm. space. He, he put out some, something on his Instagram and it was like one of his Joshua Tree properties. It was called the shroom room. And it was (laughs) like, it was like a, it was basically a room that was like tailored to like people going out there and taking mushrooms. (laughs) I was like, holy cow. I've never, I've never heard of that before. And
1: and that's what I'm saying. (laughs) Those are the things you you need to start thinking about to say, how can I differentiate myself? Yeah. And how can I, and here's the thing, like you don't have to create something new. Mm -hmm. If you just gather inspiration from other places and see like, what are the amenities that are working well in this market that aren't being done here? And you you tie that in, like, we one of the best things we did, we did this in, I want to say, like, late 2021, early 2022, was we added hot tubs to all of our Josh Street properties.
0: Love the hot tub play.
1: Dude, and, like, when we first did it, almost no one, like, the majority of listings did not have hot mm-hmm. tubs when we yep. were doing that. But we got the idea because in Tennessee, you have to have a hot tub at your property just to, like... Compete, be even be considered yeah. right if you don't have a hot tub you're you're, you're listening yeah it's like
0: being in scottsdale and not having a pool totally you need right? it you, or you get crushed right
1: you it's it's the it's the the, the barrier of entry that you have to meet right mm-hmm. and we said well man if if we know that this amenity does really well in this market almost no one's doing it over here let's just take it and, and drop it in and that mm-hmm. was the first thing we did we did that really kind of lifted up our listings
0: that's smart and then, the competition. yeah i love that another thing you said was uh no cleaning fees yeah cause we're always looking at ways to like dial in our listings. We're like, Hey, how can we improve them? How can we make them more appealing? Um, so we'll go through and adjust the listing titles, the photos. But one of the things that we talk about sometimes, and we haven't tried it yet is the cleaning fee, removing the cleaning fee. So how, how does that work? I know you said you built it into your pricing, but if you have a four night booking versus a one night booking, um, the way you build it into your pricing is going to be different. So how do you guys approach that?
1: So it, it's it's hard to do it on a per booking basis, right? Instead, what we're hoping is that over the course of a month, over the course of a year, it should balance out. So I know, for example, like that that property that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. it's going to turn somewhere between 10 to 12 times in a given month, right? On average, that's what we see. And if our average stay is two nights, I can do the math to mm-hmm. say, okay, here's how many bookings I know that I'm going to get. Here's how much cleaning revenue I would have received. I, I need to disperse that across all of my bookings through my ADR to lift it up, right? Based
0: on your average night. Based day. on my
1: average nightly say, right? So okay. if I know, and I'm gonna try and do this math, it could be totally <laughs> wrong. Right. But say that I get on average 10 bookings in a month. Sure. Right. And say that I usually generate a thousand dollars in cleaning fee income for those ten bookings, right? Mm-hmm. Across those ten bookings, that's a hundred dollars per booking that I get for my cleaning fee. So I know if my usual ADR is two hundred, I need to bump my ADR up to 299 to be able to offset what that is, right? Or maybe not 299, maybe it's like 249 if my average day is two nights, right? Mm -hmm. But there's math you can do to work backwards to say how do I need to increase my ADR to offset that cleaning fee? Sure.
0: Hey guys, real quick, I hope that you're finding value in this show. If you could do me a huge favor and drop a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you're listening on, it would mean the world to me. Also, if you know of anyone that would potentially benefit from this podcast, feel free to share it with them so we can help more people build wealth through real estate investing. Now back to the show. And then you mentioned you put no cleaning fee in your title. Mm-hmm. And you think you think because of that, you just get more clicks? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Right, absolutely. Because here's the thing. Guests, like I just said, guess hate paying cleaning fees. Yeah. So even if the stay, even if the total for the stay is the exact same amount, the fact that they are not paying a cleaning fee, just psychologically, it's more enticing to them. Yeah. And we've we've tested that out now on, on two different listings. And both times, as soon as we put it in there, it skyrocketed. So we're we're slowly trying to roll it out, but it, it is a, a measured approach you're gonna take.
0: I believe it. Um, because we're in a bunch of different markets, and and one of the markets we're in is Scottsdale. And, uh, one of my properties out there, we, we switched cleanings or uh, cleaners since, mm-hmm. but one of the first cleaners was charging like, I think like nine fifty 50, a claim bigger property. Dude, but wait, but <laughs> I stopped by the property. Like, uh, I don't know. I stopped by for like, to check on a couple things a while back. It was like right after we launched it. Yeah. And I noticed that, um, the, there was like a sign in the kitchen and it was from the housekeepers and it said, Hey, make sure you do all the dishes, put everything away take the trash out before you leave. And by the way, here's our Venmo if you want to scan and leave us an additional tip. And I was thinking, dude, like if I'm booking a luxury property, I'm dropping $1,000 on a cleaning fee. I'm not going to do the damn dishes. Totally. And so anyway, so since then we've pivoted. But I guess my point is is these cleaning fees are very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of hosts are you know, asking their guests to do additional stuff and basically clean the property for them, which I just don't I don't think that's right. right. If I go stay at a hotel, yeah. I'm not expecting to make the bed. Mm-hmm. I'm not expecting to take the trash out and that sort of thing. So I think the same thing goes with these short-term rentals, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what you're alluding to.
1: Absolutely, man. And, and I, I think part of it is is that a lot of hosts have kind of ruined it for all of us by putting all these chores mm-hmm. on the guests. Like we, we met in Nashville at that conference, and we stayed at an Airbnb while we were out there. And that host wanted us to, to wash not one, but two loads of laundry. He said, please strip all the beds, wash all the whites first, put that in the dryer. And then once you're done, wash all your towels, which are the dark colors. And we didn't, we didn't, just for the point of like making a point, we made sure <laughs> not to do any laundry before we left.
0: Absolutely. I, I wouldn't do it either. Um, speaking of Nashville, are you going you back out in March? We are, man. So Sarah and I will
1: both be speaking. At, I think we're actually opening the event up. So it'll be, it'll be fun, man.
0: Love that. We're going to be out there. The whole team will be there. So we'll definitely have to connect. Yeah. Um, that will be a good time. I want to ask you, man. So while we're on the topic of STR, what are your thoughts on pricing strategies? Where, how do you how do you typically do that? Do you use a third party like Price Labs? How do you approach it?
1: Every single host, whether you have one listing, five, 10, you sh- everyone should be using some kind of dynamic pricing tool. Um, AirDNA and Price Labs are probably the two big ones. Beyond Pricing is another one that you hear about. But um, we we definitely encourage everyone to use a, a pricing tool of some sort the reason is if you use airbnb smart pricing you're 100% leaving money on the table because airbnb's goal they make money through volume right like mm-hmm. airbnb wants as many bookings as possible mm-hmm. and what you're seeing like airbnb releases like their quarterly numbers sure. and airbnb's been doing record revenue right so airbnb as a company has been breaking records in terms of revenue and profitability but the individual host have seen 2022 as a down year versus 2021. Why is that? Because there's more volume on the platform. So Airbnb is incentivized to offer prices that are lower than hotels and so more people book on that platform. And hopefully that means there's a higher number of bookings, which means more revenue. So Airbnb's goal when it comes to pricing is at odds with yours as a host. As a host, you're trying to maximize revenue. Airbnb is trying to maximize volume. So use the dynamic pricing tool. Now, the way that we set ours up, we typically try and create a comp set. So a... Mm-hmm. Uh, a set of comparable properties that we look at to try and set our pricing. And we usually have somewhere between 10 to 15 properties that we're looking at. And we use those prices to gauge, okay, what should we be pricing our property at for today, for tomorrow, for the next day? And uh, we have we have folks on the team now who manage that on a daily basis. So they're in there every single day making changes and adjustments, but essentially create your concept and use their pricing to help you dictate what yours should be.
0: Yeah. Uh, which, uh, which, which, platform do you guys use to set all your pricing? We
1: use price labs.
0: Okay. We use the same as well. I've noticed and the team notices too, like as we get more and more listings, especially with these boutique hotels, I mean, we're bringing on 10 at a time, you know, you start to go through the price labs and we go through a couple times a week, typically on Mondays and then maybe Thursdays going into the weekend. But we're starting to realize it just becomes more and more time in intensive if you would mm-hmm. to go through I mean it's one thing if you're going through three or four listings right. you can really spend a lot of attention on those three or four listings but when you start to go through 40 <laughs> 45 of them 50 right. that's a lot of time invested mm-hmm. um do you guys have a strategy to kind of go through them so it's not as time intensive
1: no you don't <laughs> yeah, I wish I did <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, and honestly I was doing the price of myself for a while mm-hmm. And what I noticed was that our listings were starting to suffer because I wasn't spending enough time in the tool. Mm. So we hired two VAs who are revenue managers and now their job is to be in there every single day. We just split the portfolio in half. One VA has one half, the other VA has the other half. And they're in their tool every single day making adjustments to the to the pricing. And you know, I think there's a common misconception that the pricing tools can run on autopilot. And that's really not what they're there for. You still have to go in there and actively yeah. manage them. The purpose of the tool is that it makes the data collection a lot easier and it automates the changes that you want to make, but you still have to dictate what changes you feel are appropriate.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think you definitely got to push and pull on those things, but you got to dial in those assumptions. And I think over time, I feel like the Price lapse tool kind of like learns a little bit more and more each, each week of your listing. And then the big thing I think is really like, those big nights and those big weekends mm-hmm. that you don't know about. I mean, we might know about 4th of July and Christmas and New Year's, mm-hmm. but I mean, we don't know in all these different markets when there's a big oh. concert in town on a random weekday. Totally. You know what I mean? Dude, like in, in Tennessee, like I said, we had never gone
1: there before. We'd never even been there before we, we got our property. But every, I want to say every fall, like sometime in September, there's this massive car show and it like shut down the main drag and us not living there, we yeah. wouldn't have known that. But the pricing tool, because it has all these data points it's looking at, it can see that the searches are going up for for weeks uh, or for the week that that car show is happening. It can see that other comparable listings are charging more for that week. So it's naturally going to tell you, hey, Rich, you need to charge more for this week as well. You may not know why, Mm -hmm. but it knows that it can look at those demand signals to give you that information.
0: Yeah, I love that. So um, we know Sarah is involved with uh, the real estate investing business and and Mm -hmm. you guys are doing a lot of this together. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's very unique that to meet a husband and wife duo that are doing it together. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that. How's, how's it, how is it investing in real estate with your partner?
1: Yeah, I, I get this question so often, man. And, and mostly it's from like spouses that are like, Tony, I want to get my spouse on board. Like, how did you do it? Like, yeah. what did you do to get, to get her on board? And the first thing I'll say, Rich, is that there, there's like levels of like working with your spouse, right? I think the first level is you're the person that wants to do it and your spouse is opposed to it, right? Like they're actively telling you, I don't want you to do this. That's probably the worst situation to be in. Sure. The second level is you're doing it and your spouse is approving of you doing it, but they're not involved. Mm-hmm. And then the third level is where me and Sarah are, where we're both doing it together. We're in the trenches together every day. And so many people, they want to get to that third level, not realizing that maybe level two is all you're going to get. Like, as long as your spouse is supportive yeah. and, and encouraging you, that's all. And that's all you
0: perfectly need. fine. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, you either want a spouse that's going to support you fully mm-hmm. um, and they're not gonna be involved right. or they're gonna be in the trenches with you building <laughs> right. it together. I always thought it would be cool to, um, you know, have a partner to where we're building something together. I mm-hmm. think a lot of marriages in the US, they don't work out because right. you're not building something together. And we don't have that same common target that you're like working towards every mm-hmm. day, it's like, well, what are you living for? You mm-hmm. know, so I think um, it's pretty unique that you guys, you guys have that.
1: I appreciate that, man. And you know, my, my advice to people that want to do that is Before you can get your spouse on board, you need to do a self-assessment to see if you're even worthy of that person supporting you.
0: Oh, that's good.
1: Because if you're the type of person I do, me in my 20s, I had a different business idea every other weekend, right? And I was chasing some different money scheme idea. And I wasn't worthy of someone supporting me that because I didn't have, I hadn't shown that I was committed to being successful. So- if your spouse is not supportive, they're saying, Rich, Tony, I don't want you to do that. Maybe don't get mad at them. Ask yourself first, what do I need to change in my approach, in my behavior to make my spouse understand that I am serious about this? So that, that is one of the things I see so many people miss.
0: Yeah. So was Sarah on from basically day one when you guys bought that first STR?
1: She was supportive. Yeah. I think from day one, she was never an obstacle to me wanting to get into this, but she was definitely not involved when we first started. Um, like I said, initially we were buying long-term rentals out of state, and yeah, I was making like 150 bucks a month, and she was like, "What is this little thing that you're doing?
0: Like, it's gonna take forever." And you get you get one big repair the the HVAC unit goes out. There's your cash flow for 18 months gone.
1: And she she just wasn't enticed by that. And you know we were buying in a very small market in Louisiana. Um, But when we made the transition to short-term rentals, I was still working full time. My business partner was working full time. Sarah had just left her job because she wasn't super happy there. And I told her like, Hey, you have some extra time now. We're going to be busy like with our day jobs. We need someone to kind of focus on like managing these properties. Do you want to do it? And she was like, Yeah, I guess so. I'll try it out. And it just ended up being such a great role because it took all of the things that she was uniquely qualified to do and the things that she enjoyed. And it allowed her to use those skills within the business. So, I mean, she wasn't initially, but when we found that niche. That's when she really got on board.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now she's uh, totally on board and she, she's building it with she, you, man. She's That's, right there with me, man. It's yeah. a blessing. For yeah. Sure. You guys both have great energy. So uh, kudos to you for Amen. that, man. Um, and then so you guys uh, started a doing live events, yeah. which I think is uh, pretty impressive. You guys hosted the first one. I believe it was in Newport Beach yeah. uh, late last year. And you just hosted a second one out in Orlando. Did. Um, how did the live event thing come to fruition? And, and kind of t- talk a little bit about that. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, so the, the event is called the STR
1: Summit. So if you guys head over to strsummit.com, um, you guys can check it out there. And it, it, it initially came together, man, because there wasn't a whole lot in the short-term mental space that kind of brought people together. Like the event that we met at was the first short-term rental event I had even really heard of. That's why I ended up buying a ticket because I was like, oh man, there's a short-term rental (laughs) event and like, I need to go and I need to check it out. So there was a lack of community in this space. There's a bunch of events on flipping. There's a bunch of events on long-term rentals. There's like every other, you know, multifamily, everything else has their, their kind of community. It hadn't been created yet for short-term rentals. So me and Sarah said, look, we already have this, this presence online. Can we take this online community and put it in person? And that was kind of the genesis of it, man. And we did our first event uh, last fall, and it was a great turnout. People really enjoyed it. So we said, let's do it again. So we're doing it every quarter now. Um, so we'll be in Austin this year and we got some other dates planned out, but it's it's been a really cool ride.
0: Yeah. what is it like speaking in a room mm-hmm. of a lot of people like that? Because I've done podcasts before. Yeah. I've done some some interviews um, that I've gone out to a lot of eyeballs before, but I've never done mm-hmm. any live speaking event. Um, and also we host our meetups, but it's a little bit different. Um, what is it like speaking in front of like a big group of people like that? Dude, I love it. Yeah. You know,
1: and, and I think everyone has that one thing that they are uniquely qualified to do. And for me, I've always felt it was speaking. Like, that's just something that I love doing. I love taking complex ideas and breaking them down in ways that people can understand. And you know, you can see the light bulbs going off in mm-hmm. people's minds and, you know, they're taking notes while you're up there and you're just engaging people, you're inspiring them. So I love it, man, and, and that's a big part of the reason why we want to continue to do it because it, it kind of speaks to who we are and what we we'll enjoy
0: yeah. from. Learning to become a successful real estate investor can take a lot of time and dedication, which some people just don't have. If you're one of these individuals, this doesn't mean you can't invest in real estate. My company, Summers Capital, is buying a bunch of boutique hotels right now, and you can invest with us in these deals without having to do any of the work. Our team sources the deals, we secure the lending, we take care of all the renovations, and we even handle all the day-to-day operations with our in-house management company, making it truly hands-off and passive for our investors. If you want to learn more to see if we can help you, go to Summers capital.com slash invest to book a call with our team. Again, that's summerscapital.com slash invest. Now back to the show. And I love, like, one thing I love about you guys is, is you guys are, you know, all about giving back and helping the community. You guys are changing a lot of lives in the sense that you guys are helping people buy their first rental property, right. their first STR. You're coaching them through it. You're letting them know, hey, this is possible. We just did it right. ourselves. And you're then you're providing them with all the resources required in order to do it. And I don't know if you guys noticed it or not, but I I mean, it's life changing for a lot of these individuals, you know, and I think it's easy for us because we're doing it every day. We're putting Mm -hmm. out content. We're in the mix. We think it's normal. But for the everyday person, I mean, that is a big deal for them to buy their first rental property.
1: Absolutely, man. And, And, you know, I I I wake up so incredibly humbled every day, Rich, because I get to hear those stories from people about how. The YouTube video, the course, the mm. event, whatever it is, like drove someone to take action and change their life. And it never gets old to hear those stories. And it's it's such it's such a weird dynamic because when you create content, we're sitting in a studio, right? Yeah. And it's just us. And we don't we don't get to meet the people that are on the other side and we don't get to see what they do with this information. Mm-hmm. But there are people out there who are taking it and using it and acting on it and literally changing their lives. And
0: it, it it's it's so crazy to me, man, still. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a powerful thing, man. How did you? I, I was always been curious. How did you get invited to become the host of the Bigger Pockets Rookie Podcast? Yeah.
1: So this is this is a story that I love sharing because it just proves that um, if you take enough action, good things typically happen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When when I made the decision to invest in real estate, one of the first things that I knew I needed to do was build a platform, because I knew that eventually I wanted to raise money. Um, I knew that eventually I wanted to do bigger deals and I only had a limited amount of capital, yeah. right? So at some point I needed to find a way to find people that I connected with that wanted to work with me to help me grow this business and and it really be a win-win situation. So the first thing I did, didn't even have my first deal yet. I started a podcast and it was called Your First Real Estate Investment. And all I did was interview investors about their very first deal. And it was very you know unique to me because I was a new investor at that time. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't trying to put on this front that I was this big time person. I said, Hey, my name is Tony J. Robinson. I'm a new investor. I need to learn. So I'm interviewing people about their first deal. And I want to say I did like 70 episodes of that podcast. And I met, and dude, when I first started, I was working full time, putting out three episodes a week. Like I was just like cranking out content. Right. And I, and my thought process was if I do three episodes a week over the course of an entire year, that's 150 some people that I'm going to be able to connect Mm -hmm. with. And who knows what those connections will take me. So one of the people that I interviewed on that podcast, she had been blogging for Bigger Pockets and they approached her and said, hey, we're looking to launch this new podcast it's called The Real Estate Rookie. Um, we like you because you've been blogging for us. Do you know anyone else that might be a good co-host for you? And I just interviewed her on the podcast and she's like, Tony's actually doing something super similar. He would be awesome. So we auditioned for the podcast. It was me and her. And you know, we went through all these different stages and it came down to the final round. It was me and her versus two other people and we who were the two others it was ashley and felipe so okay. they were the original host for the podcast so we didn't we got rejected they said tony and and her name was megan uh you guys were great but we're gonna go with ashley and felipe
0: wow i didn't know this part
1: that, that that's how it happened man and um so I, you know i was heartbroken but i was like cool you know whatever it was, <laughs> yeah. it was a cool thing i made a, a lot of good relationships at that at, at bp and i just kept humming along i was putting out my content and a few months down the line then i'm having a disagreement with one of the other hosts and they end up, you know, saying, hey, we need to bring someone in to replace that person. And because I had already been vetted, they would already kind of seen what I was doing. They saw my own podcast continuing to grow. They came back and said, Tony, we would love to have you on the show if you're still interested. I'm like, of course, I'm so interested. And um yeah, man, I, I started at episode, I think 37 was my first one. Roughs like episode 260 or something now. So wow. man, it's been crazy.
0: Are you guys weekly or is it two a week? How, how often yeah, right are you Right guys- now we have two
1: episodes a week. So okay. every Monday, I'm sorry, every Wednesday and Saturday we have episodes okay. to come out.
0: I love that. And and you're so right about, like you mentioned, you started your own podcast. You did about 75 episodes um, and you're working full-time. I had an old podcast with the two partners, but at the time when we started it, I was still working a full-time W-2. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I didn't even realize and in terms of just power of the podcast is not only about helping others and listeners, but like you mentioned, it's those relationships that you build. Right. You get to interview all these people that have a lot more experience than you and you get to ask them the questions that you actually oh, have. So it helps you learn. Yeah. But then also you're networking, you're building relationships with all these individuals and you never know what those relationships are going to lead to. Absolutely. Um, one of my mentors, and I still have him as a mentor today, Tony Azar, he, uh, they're big time out of the North Carolina. They, they have about $700 million of real estate, two private jets, No one knows who these guys are. Um, They're not on social media or anything like that. But his brother, John, came on our podcast early on, and they ended up mentoring uh, my two partners and I. We ended up buying about $35 million of real estate uh, with them over in North Carolina all because of that podcast okay. and that's the true power of these damn podcasts man You,
1: you never know where these connections are going to take you and yeah. I'm definitely not encouraging people to walk into it with a transactional mindset mm-hmm. because that wasn't my intention I'm sure that wasn't yours either, but it's like, you know that if you give enough value to people The laws of the universe are that you will get some kind of value in return And what so many new investors struggle with rich is that they feel I don't have anything to share I'm I'm not experienced enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not him. I'm not her. And the the truth is, people will resonate with certain people and they will not resonate with other people. Someone might say, Tony, you're too boring. I don't I don't like the tone of your voice. Right. You're, you're too calm and mellow for me. Other people say, Tony, your voice soothes me. I love listening to you, right? Or some people will say, you know, Rob, who's a good friend of mine, Rob Bill, he's like, Rob's too funny. I don't like Rob's jokes. Other people say, I love Rob's jokes, and that's mm-hmm. why I watch him. So Everyone will, will identify with you and say, hey, there's something in your story that I can't get from anybody else. And I'm going to follow you because of that one thing in your story. So even if you're new, even if you feel like you have nothing of value, you still have your story. Yeah. And
0: that's something you can share with people. I love that. Um, so what about the social media? Because you guys are just pumping out content. Yeah. Um, when did you start getting really serious about posting content on, on social, like the short form stuff?
1: I, I, again, I, I always knew that there was value in, in building up that platform, but we really didn't start to systematize our like content production until about a year ago. Okay. Um, so we were, I was kind of doing everything myself. And then, about we're in January, yeah, exactly a year ago today, we hired a social media manager and we hired a couple of VAs to help her out. And that's when we really started to kind of crank up our, our volume. And it, it's a little bit easier for us because we have, you know, a YouTube video that we put out every week on my channel with my wife. I have two, you know, 30, 45 minute uh, podcasts, two bigger pockets. So just those two things alone, it's like three hours of content, long form content that our team can kind of chop up and, you know, distribute throughout the week. And we also do stuff that's specific for short form. So I go with my videographer, you know, we'll spend a a few hours together and I'll just do a bunch of like, hey, here's five ways you need to do this to to launch your Airbnb. And I think as we've really put a focus on that, we've seen the benefit from it.
0: Yeah, we're actually um, hiring right now uh, someone, it's gonna be a VA, to kind of be a social media content like manager mm-hmm. um, and to help us um, with you know YouTube. We're launching a, a new YouTube channel here shortly. But um, what do you have your social media manager do? So she she
1: does a few things. So she oversees our editor. So we have a, a social media editor who takes all that long-form content and chops it all up. Yeah. So she's working with her on pretty much a daily basis, give her feedback, say, hey, don't use this clip, use this clip, change this thing, don't change this thing. Um, so she, she works really closely with her. She posts everything to my social. We're doing like three times a day right now. So she writes all the captions and, and posts everything. Um, She also helps with the ideation phase, right? So as we're trying to think like, hey, what are some different things we should be mm-hmm. doing? She helps us kind of come up with those. And um, she does all the metrics for us as well. So we track metrics in every part of my business. At least I try to. And she does all the KPI reporting for that as well.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think when you start to like, you know, syst- put systems and processes in place for the content, it makes things a lot easier. But also, um, you know, when you do these long form recordings, like what we're doing right now, this conversation, it's, you know, you can shop this up and put it in the short form right. and there's your short form content. You almost mm-hmm. don't have to record as much short form content anymore. You just mm-hmm. get into these long podcast conversations and now you're kind of hitting all the different metrics out there, which okay. I think is a, a big lever um, that I think a lot of people that are doing the social media, they don't realize.
1: And there's so many different ways, like I like to script my YouTube videos because we're usually like teaching a concept. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure that I'm like giving our value to, to our mm-hmm. to our subscribers. So a lot of times we'll have the actual YouTube video that gets chopped up, right? Mm-hmm. And we have the script on the back end. We'll use that. We can turn it into like a carousel post, tweet graphics. So even the the content on the back end, we're still chopping that up and reusing it as many times as we can as well.
0: How do you come up with a YouTube video?
1: Dude, that <laughs> that part it can get hard sometimes. Because YouTube is this weird place where there's a lot of new people that are finding you for the first time that need beginner information. And it's like, how many times can I talk about the different keypads you should have in your Airbnb before it gets old? But what we see is that every time we do that, it, it kind of reaches a new audience. So we, we always try and go back to a lot of the beginner topics. And you know, those are things that we just being in the business, we know what questions people are going to ask. And then a lot of the other ideas just come from, I'll see a video that does well in the personal finance space. Or a video that does well in maybe like the long-term mental space. And I'll say, hmm, can I put a short-term mental twist to that? And I'll use that as kind of like my framework to rebuild a new video as well. So we've got a bunch of different ways you pull content. But I think knowing what people are asking and then using um, like inspiration from other niches helps a lot as well.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think the other thing that, you know, you get out of posting every single day is, I mean, let's just say for someone new that wants to start putting out content on social media. If you just do it every single day for 90 days, Mm -hmm. that's one post a day, 90 days, you'll have 90 pieces of content. You can go back and see, okay, which ones did do well, which ones didn't do well what about the ones that did well can I repurpose right. and put a different twist to? Because yeah, you already know that it's going to do well again.
1: Dude, like, so you know what I've noticed about you? You have um, that video with you on the whiteboard uh-huh. and you're talking about your LLC structure. Yeah. And I've seen you do that a couple times. And I'm <laughs> sure it's because those videos have done well for you, yep, right? Exactly. Same for us. We meet with our social media coordinator every other Friday. And in the reports that she sends us, it's, hey, what were the top posts from this, this last week? And we'll review the same like, hey, what was the post? Why did it do well? How can we replicate that in another way that's like fresh and unique, but mm-hmm. still keep that same spirit of what made it do well the first time?
0: Yeah. I saw uh, Gary Vee put out something. He said like, if you have a post that goes viral, um, like repost it, repurpose it, oh. it remix it, mm-hmm. like just keep squeezing it. Because <laughs> when those things go viral, you know, on Instagram, you get on the, uh, the explore page and they right. just start putting you out to all these new people. And you get a bunch of new followers out of it, Mm -hmm. you know? Dude, we'll we'll repost. Like, I probably have the
1: same post go up maybe like four times a year. Mm. If it does well the first time. We'll just repost the same exact post. We'll just repost it again because, dude, sometimes I forget the stuff that, that goes on my Instagram. So if I'm forgetting and it's my Instagram, I know for sure my followers aren't going to remember a post that came up four months ago. So we definitely just recycle the same post if it does well. Also. Yeah,
0: Meta's been weird though. Like I don't know. I've been having bad luck with Meta. I don't know what it is. But my account was taken down two times dude, mine <laughs> late too. last year. You got yeah. yours taken down too? It
1: was. It was super weird, man. Like it was. a I, it, I remember it vividly. It was a Friday night. Okay. And I got just like a bunch of fake followers. Like I could, see, and I knew that they were fake because like you open up Instagram and instead of it being like, you know, Tony J Robinson or, or rich, it was like, you know, Tony Robinson underscore one, two, five, seven, eight, nine. And you click on it. It was like a brand new profile. I was like, this is super weird. Like this never happened before. I woke up the next morning, my account suspended. And I'm pretty sure what happened is that we have a lot of like people impersonating both me and my wife mm-hmm. and dude, like you should see like how elaborate these people are. So I'm assuming Someone who's trying to impersonate me tried to take me down by sending a bunch of fake followers my way. But it, it has been a struggle for sure.
0: Yeah, I have, a, I have a bunch of accounts out there as well, like trying to um, impersonate. I think Alex shared one uh, last week to the team, to oh, our yeah. group text thread. And it was like I clicked on it and it was like a profile. And it said like young, depressed boy. And it had all these like posts, like reels of me, like <laughs> teaching LLC stuff. It was like That's hilarious. So but there's a bunch of them out there. So I got my account taken down like twice late last year. Uh, first time was only for like three days. And then the next time was like for like 10 days. No way. And what this media team that I work with was saying was these bot accounts, the fake accounts, obviously they're trying to reach out to your audience, mm-hmm. especially cause we do real estate investing. Right. They know that people that follow us have some money. Totally. And so then they'll DM them saying they're us, Hey, uh, come invest in my product, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's totally a scam, but these bot accounts from what this media team told me, is if they don't get reported, they'll start reporting the real person because you know if they get the real person taken down for a week, let's say, now they can really go heavy. It's free reign, right? It's free reign, yeah. And that's exactly uh, what happened. And so they said like the algorithm will see a big tick up in reports, and so if you have that big tick up, Instagram will take you down. And I believe Meta right now is trying to clean up a lot of these like bot accounts, but sometimes they will take down the real accounts, it, and that's exactly what happened isn't with that me. That's so crazy. It's crazy. And
1: like like one big thing comes to mind is that if you really want to build a platform yeah. for yourself you need more than just an Instagram following. You need emails, you need phone numbers. Mm-hmm. And we do our best to to collect as many emails and phone numbers as we can. So even if Instagram went away today, I know we still have tens of thousands of emails that we can use to still get our, our products in front of people and, and raise money for our deals and our events and all these other things. But it's because we, we're we building our own kind of connection with these people outside of Instagram.
0: Yeah, that's so good. And and I think like you can take that same concept across multiple things like, we just started a direct booking platform for our short term rentals and our hospitality stuff because, mm-hmm. you know, one time our Airbnb account got taken down and mm-hmm. it took down every single one of our listings Isn't for like a week. Crazy? We're like, dude, this is crazy. And so when that happened, we're like, Hey guys, we gotta, uh, we gotta start sourcing mm-hmm. our own thing and let's start, you know, a direct booking platform. Let's start collecting all the email addresses of all of our guests that stay at our properties. And so now we just implemented a whole new Wi-Fi thing. So I forget the name of it, but it's some third party Wi Fi thing. So, any guest that comes and stays at our property, uh, they want to log in and use the Wi Fi, they got to put their email address in there. So, not only are we getting the guests that booked, but all of their all guests that came in with them. Fit. And then we can start putting them on our email drip.
1: We did the same thing uh, this actually this month. We yeah. finished launching it all. And, same dude, like, you know, yeah. we, we've been doing this for two and a half years now, zero email addresses from any of our guests. And it's like, how much money have we left on the table in our real estate business mm-hmm. by not being able to go back to those people directly and get them to book with us? So yeah. same thing. We have that. So if anyone wants to join the Wi-Fi, we got to get you that email address first.
0: Dude, I just wish that we would have started sooner because on I mean, all the I mean, we would have thousands and thousands. tens of thousands of emails by now.
1: And and those are so like those emails are worth so much more because those are people who have actually paid to stay at your property. Yeah. It's one thing to get an email of someone who might want to stay or someone who might be interested. But someone who's actually already given you money to stay at your property, mm-hmm. that is a much higher quality email because you can remarket them and say, hey, you, you enjoyed it last time. Here's a 10% discount to come back.
0: Yeah, they've already stayed at your property. They know what to expect. Um, and then also, like from a host standpoint, it's like we've already hosted them. We know that they don't bring problems and they're right. good guests to host. So we can There's that level of trust, mm-hmm. but they don't have to pay the OTA fees because right. Verbo Airbnb is getting pretty expensive now mm-hmm. as, a, as a guest. Yeah, because when I travel. I always try to stay with Airbnb if I can, depending on the city. Mm -hmm. Some cities I go to, um, and I'm always traveling around the world, some cities I go to, it's just like there's not a lot of good Airbnb options, but but there's like really cool hotel options, right? So if I go to one of those markets, I'll stay in a hotel. But on the flip side, like I love going to Medellin, Colombia. When I go down there, I stay in the same Airbnb every time. It's like a brand new construction, Mm -hmm. 18-unit Airbnbs. um, And they're all like 1,000 square foot. You get your own kitchen, your own laundry. It's great for entertaining. Um, I love staying at those kind of properties when I travel. It's just just so much better than staying in a room, you you know? It's easier
1: for you as a guest, right? Like if you already know you had a good experience, it would be easier for me to go back and just repeat that same experience like, we don't we travel and we we we're like 50-50 on the Airbnb's. I actually do prefer hotels most do you? of the time. Really? Um, but we have a hotel that we love going to in Cancun. Okay. And we've been there like four times in the last like year and a half in the same exact hotel because we love the experience, you know. Sure. So guests love being able to be loyal if you give them if you give them the opportunity.
0: Man, four times Cancun in <laughs> in, in a year and a half.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is that, it's Playa del Carmen is like just out yeah. there. We're not like raging or anything. It's just it's this really nice inclusive resort that we like.
0: Dude, so I was sure. just out in Playa actually uh about a week and a half ago.
1: Okay, what'd you say?
0: I stayed at uh actually, so this this girl I know, she um she actually is working remotely down okay. in uh, Playa del Carmen. It's she actually lives in San Diego to
1: work remotely. <laughs> yeah,
0: so she uh, she has an Airbnb that she's staying at for six okay. weeks. So she said, "Hey, Rich, why don't you come down for a weekend?" Yeah. And I said, "Sure, I'll come down." That's up, and uh, I had done Cancun before. Mm-hmm. I had never been to Tulum, never been to Playa, right. but Playa like exceeded all my expectations, totally, man. Yeah, totally. There was
1: it's, it's less crazy than than Cancun. I Way less bit, crazy. Yeah.
0: But it's still got all the same Cancun stuff. Like I've been to, I've flown into Cancun airport twice now, and both times, like the first time, I was only like (laughs) nineteen, and like I, I, I will never forget this. I come out of the airport and uh like right through baggage claim like right when you step out in the street these like local guys are like coming up they're like hey you want to try some cocaine <laughs> blah blah blah, like whatever you need cocaine or whatever yeah. and uh now i go back i'm 37 years old same exact thing happened mm-hmm. like we're sitting there having dinner in playa and people are like doing like one of these to me across the street i'm like dude can i just have a dinner <laughs> without?" like can i enjoy myself yes yeah. it's crazy but uh yeah. there was a cool club there uh called uh coco bongo or something yeah. like that mm-hmm. and it, dude it was a full-on experience like yeah. we went out there like yeah we had like a table everything is so cheap we got like a whole table and everything for like 250 (laughs) bucks us and uh we're enjoying it they got like food and then like there's like a whole performance i would i didn't even know what to expect we just walked into this place and i was like holy shit there's like a whole production it was crazy love mexico man yeah yeah um yeah i love traveling man every time i travel i feel like my perspective just changes you know